Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Circa. In this episode for New York City, we're going to tell you about an American obsession. One sown in the streets, but with branches into every part of our culture. Politics, money, crime, the movies, even the bar that started the gay pride movement. We're talking about the mafia, of course. Don't worry. There are maps, notes, and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app. And just to put you at ease, there's nothing here we'll have to kill you for. So relax. We're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. Okay, let's admit it. We're mob-obsessed. And not just any mob. The Russian mob that's all over the city? Yeah, there's no Sopranos singing for them. The mob that conspired and tried to overthrow the capital? We're not proud of those boys. There's really only one mob for us. The Italian Mafia. And there's nowhere else in America with a mob history like New York City. Even gangster culture enshrined in urban lore, doesn't win over the hearts and minds of housewives in Hollywood like Goodfellas. And yeah, maybe that's racism. But of course, the Italians were no strangers to racism either, back before they were considered white. So how is it that Italians, Sicilians no less, the most maligned immigrants blamed for the spoil of the New World, pulled off the impossible feat to get us to love the worst of their culture? It's the great modern myth of our time. 
and we're going to get to the bottom of it. Because it's not really about the money. It's not about the violence, though it kind of is. But gruesome acts divorced from the silver screen are just that. Gruesome. It's something else. That loyalty thing. That family thing. Power. And influence. And learning how it all actually works. Of course, the real story isn't always romantic. It's ugly and heartbreaking, too. In this episode, we're going to get into some dark material. Like why the places with the best meatballs in this city are also the places where the red sauce wasn't always tomatoes. Gruesome stuff. How some of the most iconic New York spots have mob fingerprints all over them. Plus the kick line that took a stand against the mafia that everyone talks about, but no one talks about. And what all this has to do with my dentist, the subway, and my mother. And of course, what this all has to do with New York. Welcome to the greatest marketing story of all time. Leave the gun. Take the cannolis. Capiche? The Mob. A Brief Primer. Cosa Nostra. That's the inside name for the Italian-American Mafia. It means our thing. And it says everything. The word Mafia derives from the Sicilian adjective mafiusu, which means swagger. In New York, there are five main families that have been operating for more than a century. The Gambino, Lucchese, Genovese, Bonanno, and Colombo families. They're run like an army meets a corporation. There's a boss, underboss, capos, soldiers, and then there's the commission, which is like the G7 summit of mob bosses. Oh, and another thing, to be in the mafia, to really be in the mafia, you have to be full-blooded Italian, preferably Sicilian. Remember, cosa nostra. The mob's been around in New York for practically ever. Sure, Al Capone was a Chicago guy, but he was born in New York City and trained by the father of the American mafia himself, Paul Kelly. Oh, I know what you're thinking. The father of the Italian mob was an Irishman? Of course not. But Paolo Antonio Vaccarelli, born to Italian parents in the Bowery in New York City, was a boxer in the early 1900s, and let's just say it paid to be aligned with an Irish name at that time. Italians were newer than the Irish immigrants and therefore had replaced them on the bottom of the pecking order. Paul Kelly founded the Five Points Gang, made up of mostly Irish and Italian members. They were known for notorious violence and power. When they fought, they often fought to the death. Kelly's gang launched the illustrious careers of Johnny Torrio, Al Capone, and Lucky Luciano, three of the most famous mobsters of all time. Yet Kelly was Gentile, a man of culture, not a thug. He spoke French, Italian, and Spanish fluently, wore suits and patronized high culture. He cozied up to the socialites and made friends with the politicians. By the end, 
He rarely bloodied his own hands and died of natural causes. And that, my friends, is why the myth of the Mafia prevails. To understand the Italian mob, you gotta understand what it was like when Italians first started coming to this country. And to understand it even more, you gotta go back to its place of origin, Sicily, where my grandparents are from. But we'll get to that a little later on. Let's start at the turn of the century, the 20th century. It's a known trope. Italians came to the city, mostly from the poor south of Italy, and were immediately discriminated against. They came looking for a better life. But where in Italy there at least was space and olives and decent coffee, in America there were tenements and 16-hour work days and disease. Most of the Italian immigrants moved initially to what became Little Italy, a small neighborhood tucked into what is now Chinatown in Lower Manhattan and where, at its peak, almost 10,000 Italian-Americans lived in a roughly two-square-mile area. Pretty soon, there were little Italian communities in East Harlem in Upper Manhattan, Williamsburg, and Cobble Hill in Brooklyn, and through much of the Bronx. But initially, Italians were sequestered to an area of squalor that the city turned a blind eye towards. Justice couldn't be found in the law. So, Italians extorted other Italians because they knew they could. So what do you do when the place that was supposed to save you spits on you? You do what you know. You form a community, open coffee shops and social clubs, make pasta, go to church. You find a way to make it. Even if that means starting a crime syndicate, get what you can and build from there. Maybe you'll have to squeeze the businesses around you, skim the cream from the top, and take out a few men along the way. But then you'll control the law, the police, the judges basically, become the boss. Until the bigger boss doesn't need you anymore and throws you to the wolves. Sounds pretty New York to me. Of course, the mafia wasn't new. Being an entrenched way of life and death in Italy and especially Sicily for several hundred years before it arrived in America. But just like today, if there had been access to good jobs, equal representation, actual community support there wouldn't have been as much of a need for the Mafia. If Sicily hadn't been ransacked by everyone to begin with, if people didn't carry out vendettas of revenge for their killed brothers or fathers or sons... When I go to Sicily, it's like being in Brooklyn. Brooklyn before it became a brand. The man who sold me sun-dried tomatoes and the best dried chilies I've ever tasted looked like a bartender in Bushwick. Hair slicked back, tattoos. When I asked for a better price, he just looked at me like, Look, kid, these are good. Go get your cheap shit somewhere else. I ain't budging. With that smirk. That smirk. I know it so well, because sometimes it's what eats my face when I'm feeling smug. Sicily is raw. It's beautiful, and it's hood. Why is there a severed goat leg on the path to the pristine beach? Why is everyone there still smoking, like they'll never die of lung cancer? Why do they just throw things at bread like packing a getaway bag, and it's the best goddamn sandwich you ever ate? Hey, forget about it. That happens to be Brooklyn's motto, too. 
the worst of times, the best of times. It's no secret that when the economy gets ugly, crime thrives. Beginning in the late 1800s, the Cosa Nostra had its hands all over this city, but not its grip. Then came prohibition, and it was like Christmas for mobsters. Once organized crime was able to thrive in the illegal bootlegging operations, it was hard to get rid of it. During the Depression, and then especially during the economic collapse in New York in the 70s, mobsters owned the place. There's really nothing in New York the mob hasn't touched. The art world, politics, labor unions, restaurants, fashion, even gay liberation. Yep. You may have heard of Stonewall, the uprising that began the gay rights movement in the late 60s. Here's the short version. There was a police raid on the Stonewall Inn, a popular gay bar in Manhattan's West Village. Things got violent, a group of kick-ass queer folk took up a kick line and led a revolution and the rest is history. Except the backstory that is often omitted is that the immediate fight was just as much against the mafia as the NYPD. See, by the 60s, the head of the Genovese family, Fat Tony, owned most of the gay bars in the city. But this wasn't a benevolent gesture of pride. This was capitalism at its most vicious. Although homosexuality was legal in New York City, establishments openly serving alcohol to gay customers were considered by the state liquor authority to be disorderly houses, and therefore were illegal themselves. So just like they had done for prostitution, alcohol during prohibition and gambling, the mafia was able to own the gay bar industry by greasing the palms of the NYPD in exchange for turning a blind eye. These weren't gracious landlords waving rainbow flags. They were basically slumlords preying on the marginalized. Of course, not only did the mob turn quite a profit, they also had access to blackmail material when high society politicians or cultural players were seen frequenting these illicit establishments. And although they were supposedly being paid to keep the cops from busting in, rumor had it that they were the ones who often organized raids to appease the neighbors and the cops. In New York, no story is ever simple. Within days of the violent uprising that sparked the ire and courage of the queer community and beyond, activists were handing out leaflets condemning the mafia monopoly. With the publicity, the mob shut down the Stonewall Inn and eventually was pressured to remove its hold on the gay bars of New York. Before Rudolph Giuliani ever took on the mob in the 80s, and before he became a kind of mobster himself in American politics, it was a group of courageous queers who started to hit the mob below the belt in their purse. The Mob Today. So I was all ready to tell you how boring the mob is now, how dwindled their ranks and minuscule their hold on the city. Then I read the news, like from this morning and last week. And a month ago. Like how 70-year-old Rose Gargano, who filed a lawsuit against higher-ups in the Colombo crime family for killing her son, just lost control of her vehicle and died. I felt like I was watching a bad movie reading the news. 
who just loses control of a vehicle in a sketchy part of Gowanus under the BQE, the main freeway through Brooklyn. But like, who's going to start scratching at that itch unless you are begging for a full-on rash of trouble? So, rest in peace, Rose. Speaking of Gowanus, that's where they recently had a big funeral for the acting boss of the Colombo family, Andrew Russo, who died peacefully of natural causes after he paid $10 million in bail. He had gotten into some trouble for racketeering, including, and I quote, direct threats of bodily harm to control the management of a labor union to make decisions that benefited the Colombo crime family. Because even though the mob's power is diminished, it's no secret the five families are still very active. You should see the picture of this funeral. All these old Italian dudes. All of them look like they are packing, and not for vacation. Just this morning, I read the news about a bust within two of the biggest crime families, Genovese and Bonanno, running an organized crime racket out of a shoe repair store and coffee front in Queens and Long Island. Gambling threats. Little Anthony Pipitone, Joe Fish, Sal the shoemaker, and some New York detective wanting a piece of the pie. Who needs Netflix with news like this? So as you can see, we're not done with the mob, but it sure isn't the heyday. As Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker wrote, these days you're better off actually being in waste management than using it as a cover. The money's just as good, and it's not illegal. Truth is, when the mob ran the city, like in the 30s and the 70s, it pretty much sucked for everyone else. Things were really bad unless you were the 2% skimming the cream off everyone. And even for the mob, most of them ended up in body bags or behind bars. The only safe place to be in 1970s New York was Little Italy, because there were literally mob men hanging on every corner and no one was going to touch it. Most of the iconic places from the 70s in Little Italy have closed, except for a few restaurants and shops, and the oldest espresso bar in America, where you can still get a damn fine cannoli. A cannoli is kind of like an angel's wet dream. Sweet, fresh ricotta, sometimes studded with chocolate or candied orange, piped into a fried dough shell, I still remember sitting under a table outside in the twilight of my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, no older than five or six, eating my third cousin Marietta's cannolis and going into a kind of trance. To this day, nothing comes close. But unless you have a hundred-year-old Sicilian relative making you cannolis, you should head to Cafe Ferrara's. On their website, they say, Ferrara dates its origins to 1892 when Cafe Ferrara first opened its doors in New York City's Little Italy for opera lovers seeking like-minded company and refreshment. That's noble. But not everyone in Little Italy in the 1890s was wearing white gloves. And let me tell you, if they were, it was to hide fingerprints. Then, in 1972... Ferrara's was robbed for $55,000 on Easter weekend, shocking the community. Little Italy was known to be rife with mafia, but you didn't touch establishments like Ferrara's. It was a family place, meaning a Colombo family place. 
one of the biggest mob families in New York City. But turns out, Crazy Joe Gallo, although associated with the Colombo family, had just spent nine years in jail, wanted to make a splash, and sponsored the break-in. Gallo, although known to be ruthless, was also of the Paul Kelly variety of mobster. An inmate was once quoted as saying he was able to describe gouging a man's guts out with the same eloquent ease that he used when discussing classical literature. Well, let's just say that little robbery didn't sit well with the rest of the Columbos, and Crazy Joe Gallo was killed a couple weeks later in broad daylight at Umberto's Clam House while celebrating his 43rd birthday with his family. Umberto's is still there, by the way, a few blocks from its former self on Mulberry Street. At his funeral, his sister Carmela declared over his open coffin that the streets are going to run red with blood, Joey. True to her word, mob violence peaked in those years and spilled out everywhere. Even though it happened in broad daylight, no one was ever charged in Gallo's murder. But even worse, to try to rid any associated family from the Gallo block, a small stretch of President Street in Red Hook, the feds, probably in cahoots with some overeager real estate moguls and politicians, let a sewage project go dormant, and a whole community was literally left to sink into the stagnant swamp. Sorry. Guilty by association. Collateral damage. Tell that to 33 families that were made homeless so that a mobster's family could feel some heat. If this is all sounding familiar, Gallo's murder was dramatized in Martin Scorsese's movie, The Irishman. But before Scorsese owned the mob genre in film, he was just a scrappy, asthmatic kid growing up in Little Italy. If you want an amazing taste of immigrant New York for the vibe that will send nostalgic shivers down the spine of anyone out there with Sicilian grandparents, you should check out one of his first short documentaries. Italian-American, a documentary about his parents and their experiences growing up. That's why we love his films. It's the sauce cooking in the background, you know? We can almost smell it. But for anyone out there without Italian relatives to ask, you'll have to hang around an Italian social club for a while to really get the scoop. The trick is, there's not many of them left anymore. The Glory Social Club in Gowanus is temporarily closed. The Italian-American Brotherhood of Bensonhurst Social Club might be harder to get into. And the famous mob hangout, The Ravenite, on Mulberry Street is now a clothing store. But you can still go to Sal's hairstylist and barbershop down in Diker Heights and try to be a fly on the wall. Or you can try to get a seat at Rouse in East Harlem, if you're lucky. Or connected. Rouse is a southern Italian restaurant founded in 1896 with only 10 tables that every mob man has dined at at least once. But Italian neighborhoods these days in New York City aren't what they used to be. The younger generation doesn't speak any dialect, much less Italian. The Italian men don't play dominoes in Williamsburg like they used to. Where I go to get my paneforte and capers at Di Coluccio and Sons in Borough Park, the whole area around it is now Orthodox Jewish. Even the little Italy in the Bronx is more Albanian than Italian. Most Italians have moved to Long Island, to Jersey. 
Sometimes it can feel like Italians in New York are just Americans with a fondness for their grandmother's recipes and last names that make your mouth form around cool marble balls or play pinball to the opera. Coppola, Giovanni, Ciccarello, Parici. But in Diker Heights, I hear the older Italian grandmas still bring out their gas burners and giant pots every early fall to harvest the tomatoes and cook them down to sauce so that the whole neighborhood smells like the best kitchen. I know this because my dentist told me. My Sicilian dentist, of course. I said, I'm writing an episode about the mob. And out came the stories. Except that's not how it happened. I went to get a bonding. He was cordial and professional and did an expert quick job. I would have been in and out of there in 20 minutes. But right before I left, I said, how are your tomatoes doing in this heat? That's all it took. Soon, we were talking about figs and sauce and Diker Heights and going back to Sicily and the mob and the godfather, of course. He said he'd save me some figs from his tree this year. He doesn't even take my insurance, but I've been going to him for years. Because we talk about tomatoes. Because, I don't know. It's a family thing. But that sweet neighborhood, Diker Heights, where those ladies make their sauce and my dentist lives? That's also the place where there was a gruesome murder just a few years ago. Over a recipe. No, really. There's a beloved little pizza joint in Diker called L&B Spumoni Gardens. Sicilian-style pizza, deep dish, and square. And Spumoni, of course, a layered tricolor gelato. It's been there forever, and it used to be run by Louis Barbati, a charismatic third-generation steward of some of the best tomato sauce in the city. Then, one of his employees stole the recipe. Well, let's just say some people from the neighborhood got involved, and pretty soon, the Colombos and Bonanos met to settle the score before that sauce recipe nearly boiled over into bloodshed, as quoted by the Daily News. Come on! Were they scouting for Scorsese? This story's too good. But then in 2016, not 1916, Barbati was gunned down in front of his house. He had cash on him, like a lot of cash, like $15,483 in cash, to be exact. And he was even wearing some nice jewelry, but none of it was touched. And everyone loved this guy. So what gives? They eventually tracked down the murderer, who had a minor crime record and no known ties to the mob. The official FBI story is that there's no story. No connection. Sounds fishy. Why was Barbati carrying 15K in cash, you ask? Oh, it was just part of a bonus that LNB paid to its six owners, periodically. How do you have $100,000 extra a couple of times a year for slinging pizzas, you ask? You don't ask. Why would I question something that might tarnish a beloved image of a wonderful Brooklyn institution? Why would I start digging my own grave for a podcast and risk jeopardizing my family? I wouldn't. I love Sicilian pizza. Case closed. Just go get your slice and forget about it. And don't forget the tip.
Hi everyone. Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's all in the family. Let me tell you a little story, a real story, about that family thing. My mother is full Sicilian. Her grandparents both grew up in Chicago, but spoke Sicilian dialect growing up. Even in her 50s, my mother had never been to Sicily. But in 2003, she decided to take my Sib and me on a trip. So, in the dead of a New York City gray, snowy February blizzard, me, with a flu that should have barred me from international travel, we set off two weeks back to the old country. We started with quite an ancestral welcome, as my mom lost her passport almost immediately off the plane. While I was in our hotel in Catania, battling my 104-degree fever through drug-worthy dreams, my Sib and Mom were being given the runaround on what to do. All day, they went from the tourist office to the Carabinieri to the civic buildings and back again. Each destination gave them the runaround that they were closed, too bad, tough luck. When they arrived back to our hotel, they bumped into the owner and manager of the spot. Let's call him Paolo. A muscled, shaved, bald, middle-aged proprietor who had been, until then, the very textbook Sicilian style of politeness. My mom shared her runaround of the day, and Paolo gave one of his shrugs. Ah, too bad, yeah, life. But why are you in Sicily? Well, I'm Sicilian. Family. Family? Pause. Mafia? My mom didn't miss a beat. Si, mi tío, my mother said, even though she doesn't speak Italian. And just like that, the world switched. We got the golden keys to the funhouse. We swallowed the Matrix Mafia pill. Paolo embraced us, mi familia. On the horn, he went to the deputy sheriff of the town, the same one my mom and Sib had gone to and received the sorry, were closed shrug. He'll see you now. Down we all went to the courtyard, through the office where an oversized man right out of the movie sat behind his desk with two dudes just standing behind him like Secret Service. He pulled out a photocopied sheet that said something in Italian, stamped it, and then put it in a sleeve protector. All good, he said. It's like uh, same as passport. Sure. In Sicily. Probably even in southern Italy. But we had to fly through Switzerland and Germany to get home. Still, we got a taste of what it meant to be taken care of. Bureaucracy is for the chumps. Just kiss the pinky ring and we'll be golden. That's the good side. The we got your back side. The part of the story we long for. The belonging. The family. Cosa Nostra. It's important to talk about the motherland, where the mafia has such a foothold on culture. It literally lines the coats of the carabinieri. But there, the mafia is as much hated as respected, as much feared as tolerated. Anyone who has spoken out has had their whole life hijacked by a fear of retribution. 
and a need to be impeccable in hiding. The Mafia has wreaked havoc on whole generations of my ancestors, like a war that will not end. But here in America, where the dream of making and remaking yourself is always alive, the story of the unrespected immigrant rebranding themselves through fear and pinky rings to be the royalty of our day? That's a story we can't look away from. And we have the movies to blame. Hollywood's in on it. I can't remember the last time you invited me to your house for a cup of coffee. It's all in that line. Spoken by a raspy Don Corleone while petting his silken black cat. 1972's Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. A genre-changing epic. The style in The Godfather is New York legend. The dark bars, the cars, even that green-gray color of the hospital. The little Italy of old. New York City at the turn of the century and the 40s was so classic. And even though so much has changed, so many of the details in the apartments, the rooftops, the crowded streets are the same. But would The Godfather have been even half as good a film if it was about a hardworking family that loved their kids, cooked good food, and had a little drama? But then, that's just it, isn't it? That's why we love The Godfather. It is about a hardworking family that loves their kids, cooks good food, and has a lot of drama, like big-time drama. But the thing that's striking about The Godfather is that it's not like the Corleones were living in great luxury. At least in the first one. Even the Corleone mansion, shot in Staten Island, looked more like a villa with all those grandchildren. They still ate all around the table. They didn't have servants cooking their pasta. They were somehow still the underdog. And we love an underdog. My grandparents were Sicilian. They spoke dialect to each other, but never taught my mother how to speak it. Out of shame. Shame of being an immigrant. Shame to be Sicilian, much less Italian. They wanted to be American. I remember lamb chops with mint jelly, jello salad, and bad Chardonnay. How painful it is to give up flavor for a chance to be accepted. Then the godfather came along. In that opening wedding scene, they sing a raunchy Sicilian wedding song that explains all the ways a husband with different occupations would sausage his wife, to use an example. My grandparents, rather than feel further ashamed, suddenly felt prideful, felt seen. Here was a mainstream movie where not only Italian was spoken, but Sicilian. And with style and power. Here is the American dream, twisted in the truth of intimidation and extortion. And it's more New York than apple pie. I'll tell you that right now. Because Hollywood got us good. While The Godfather was slow and epic and refined, a symphony... Goodfellas electrify the genre with its brash, slick style. Humor paired with violence. Humanity with cold-blooded vengeance. A true story embellished for Hollywood. Like everywhere in New York, much of the New York displayed in Goodfellas doesn't exist anymore. Except, funny enough, Nears Tavern, dubbed the most famous bar you've never heard of. That's because it's one of the oldest bars in America and still going strong in Woodhaven, Queens. 
The Godfather, Goodfellas, A Bronx Tale, all New York stories of mob entanglements. They were all made to show the sordid and lonely parts of the inside, and yet somehow they became the epic enshrinements of mob culture. I watched The Godfather again recently. Such restraint and honor. Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando in a Muhammad Ali-like resurrection of his career, is timeless, and young Al Pacino stunning us with his pathos. But even in The Godfather, who are we rooting for? Michael Corleone becoming the Don by offing everyone and lying to his wife and ending up lonely and betrayed by his own obligations to the story? The actor who plays the main kid in The Bronx Tale ended up getting addicted to heroin and being implicated in a botched burglary where an NYPD cop got killed. Glamorous. And Goodfellas? Based on a true story where people end up drugged out and in jail or in witness protection. Wonderful. Which leads us to... The greatest marketing story ever told. So what is it about this mob obsession? Why do we care about the intricacies of criminal family structures and joke about them controlling everything from the bridges to the construction union? How humorous is it really that people still get stilted and extorted and even killed? It's not. It's awful. Why do we get wrapped up in the sordid details of people who do awful things? It's a bit like the American dream that got fed after midnight and turned into vicious, carnage-obsessed gremlins. And here I am, doing it too, spending even more time on the mob. Because I admit it, I'm totally guilty. I love saying I have mafia in my family. That my family is in the family. At least I used to. But why would I willingly romanticize and glorify the possibility of a mob connection? Especially as a woman, that violent patriarchal establishment. What's in it for me but trouble? When I really started peeling it back, I wonder if I am feeding the wrong beasts. Feeding the gremlins, you know? Like in any mythology, a telephone effect of the most gruesome enemies and most valiant heroes, American mob stories play upon the very real and smart fear that to report on anything other than the glory would mean putting your life in jeopardy. So when the worst gets squelched and the best gets exalted, you end up with a dangerous cocktail. I mean, it even happened to me writing this episode. I started making connections and then thought better of it. But I can't shake how much New York has been shaped by mob culture. How much I have been shaped by it. It all comes down to the shrug. Yep, the shrug. That shrug. If you've ever been to Italy, you know what I am talking about. Okay, so Rome fell and here we still are. You wrecked your car. You caught your wife cheating. You got a job. You lost a job. You got orders to kill a guy. Shrug. Unless, of course, the pasta is overcooked. Unless I insulted your mother. Unless your soccer team lost. Then 
it's the opposite of shrugging. Then it's like throwing gas on a flamethrower. Like cartoons of steam and screws exploding from our heads. Some of the secret to the mafia's success is this shrug. Don't worry about it. Would I make your wife a widow? I'm just going to bash your face in. I'm just going to cut your heart out with the same knife I used to slowly eat my steak dinner. It's restraint and total impetuousness all at once. Frankly, it's about as New York as you can get. Where else would we spend more money than anyone on rent? Even though the windows don't open, there's water damage on the ceiling. There are mice in the stove, roaches in the cabinets, and on our morning commute, we have to navigate open basements that plummet down dark stairs and plywood duct tape stairways into the crowded subway. Shrug. Then we blow up when they fuck up our latte. See what I'm saying? Whether or not we have Italy in our roots or Sicilian dentists, if we live in New York, we take some kind of the mob mentality for granted. They raise the price on the subway, and we gripe. But mostly, we shrug. And I say a lot of this lightly, but actually it's the truth of this city's darkest guts. And even though I'm seduced by the myth like everyone else, the reality runs on fear, deception, backstabbing. Here in New York, we start to normalize struggle and glamour and violence. And worse, we romanticize it. And then, because stories allow us to justify our own pain, we begin to believe them. So, leave the gun. Take the cannolis. Kiss your family goodnight and be thankful you don't owe anyone any favors. And otherwise, when you come to New York and you get the shrug, just means your family. Thanks for listening to our Dark City episode for New York City. Remember to check out the other episodes in this guide for deeper dives into the Big Apple's food, how to do it on a budget, and much more. You'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on the places in this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Los Angeles, Barcelona, Mexico City, Hawaii, Iceland, and many more. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.